effective criticism is also really positive. If I can confront you in real time and you can answer in real time, I'm teaching you how to do that. That's Patty McCord, former chief talent officer at Netflix, renowned human resources consultant, and the best-selling author of Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. That's the reason why shit doesn't get done. Nobody stands up and says, okay, we all know this is ridiculous. So who has an idea about how we could do this differently? I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Patty McCord to discuss the role of constructive communication in fostering innovation and collaboration, why feedback is best delivered in real time for maximum impact, and how to instill a sense of ownership in your team where everyone takes responsibility for their actions and contributions. So here's an example. I think management made a stupid decision. They shouldn't have done this. So I say, there's two questions to ask. The second one's most important. The first one is, if you were in management, what decision would you have made? The second one is, if you were in management, what information would you want to have to make the right decision? That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Patty, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So as we were talking a little bit offline, I'm excited to talk about the book and we're going to get to that. But before we do, I would love to know what led you down the path to HR, human resources, working with people. Was it anything from your childhood in terms of career path of choice? Oh, I want to go back to those deep, dark secrets. It's funny because a couple of weeks ago, I reunited with my best friend from third through sixth grade. We were out of touch for 55 years. And she went on to become the co-anchor of the Dallas Evening News. And so the reason I'm telling you this is because when we got together, it was so fun. Like, tell me about you in the 80s. Tell me about you in the 90s. Like, what was it like to be the first Hispanic woman in Southern Texas TV? And her was like, what was it like to be you in tech in the 80s and 90s? So I'll tell you my tech story. I started as a recruiter because I knew how to do that from a couple of other jobs I had. And I was pretty addicted to it. So I started out recruiting, oh, technicians and assemblers for a disk drive company here where I live. And then I started recruiting engineers, and it was mostly mechanical engineers at the time. And I was obsessed with going and hanging out with them. They were doing a lot of robotics at the time. I was like, 
oh, that's so cool, that little arm that does it. How do you think about this? So I became really obsessed with the work that people do. So when you're an internal recruiter, if you screwed up and you have a shitty team, they don't work out, then you last very long. So it was about very, very early on in my career, learning about talent and teams and what it took to make something. So I was really interested in the maker thing. So that's how I started. And I was never a very good HR person. My first company was 100,000 people globally. That was Seagate. Then my next company was Sun Microsystems in the 80s. I ran diversity then, and it was 80,000 people globally. Really interesting times. You know, when Sheryl Sandberg wrote her book, Lean In, because I knew the data from the 80s about women in technology. I looked at her data. I was like, it's worse. Oh, my God. You know, we didn't go anywhere. So then I did that. And then I did smaller companies, smaller companies. I always said, in the end, I'll be on my own. And that's where I am right now. And I am curious. So I believe you joined Netflix. This is back in, was it, was it 98? 97. Oh, 97. Okay. What did the company look like then? It was 30 people. We had these piles of DVDs in the lobby. So I shared a room with a guy named Mitch Lowe, who was one of the early founders. And we had to tell each other, you know, I'm moving my chair back. You move your chair back. We had to do that. And I would say, and Mitch owned a video retail store in Mill Valley. And I would go to the front and I'm like, hey, Mitch, Dirty Nuns is in. It was crazy. I mean, we did due dates and late fees and we just thought we'd be blockbuster online. I guess on that note, what was the culture like? And I believe you followed Reed from the past company you guys were at, right? Yeah. So I'll tell you why I ended up in that crazy little room with Mitch Lowe. Reed and I were together at a company before that called Pure Software, and we grew through merger and acquisition. Every time we acquired another company, I would take their handbook and our handbook, and I'd smush them together, and I'd create more policies because I was an HR professional, right? And then we got acquired by our largest competitor. And then Reed and I both left the company and he made a bunch of money. So he invested in other startups and that's how he invested in Netflix. And so he called me up in the middle of the night, this true story, two in the morning. He says, are you sleeping? And I'm like, yeah, I geek on normal. It's two o'clock in the morning. Why aren't you sleeping? He says, well, I'm going to go run Netflix with Mark. Mark Randolph was the co-founder at the time. And I said, yeah, sounds like a great career move. Why are you telling me this at two in the morning? And he said, I want you to come too. And I said, no way. I mean, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. DVD in the mail. I mean, who are you going to sell it to? The three other people we both know that have DVD players. They cost $800 back then, right? And he said, yeah, but we could create the company we always dreamed of. And I thought, mm. That's compelling because <laughs> I was consulting at the time. And so that's why I joined because we decided that we were going to try and do something different, not just in terms of renting movies, renting movies online, renting DVDs online, but creating a company that was maybe different than the ones we thought of before. From what I've read, it seems like you spent over a decade just experimenting, right? It's just new ways to work, new approaches, setting new standards, new norms. I'd love to know what gave rise to that mentality and then ultimately gave rise to the culture deck. 
I'm known now for being this crazy innovator. And as lawyers, you'll all understand that HR people always have to work within the confines and the parameters of the law. But what I did instead of creating crazy new ways to work was I stopped doing things that didn't make any difference, right? I just stopped doing stupid stuff. An example is I thought about why do people sue companies? It's because they're pissed off because they feel like they've been treated badly. They feel like they've been treated wrongly. They feel like nobody told them the truth and they're surprised by what happens to them. And so they think, this isn't fair. It's because I'm a woman. It's because I'm black. It's because I'm Hispanic. Whatever those reasons are, the reasons are because there's no real answer, right? And so what I decided to do was instead of creating systems and processes that prove that you're incompetent over a 90-day period so that I can fire you, Instead, I could reel it back and say, what if I told you the truth up front? What if I told you that this thing that we hired you to do that you've worked really hard on doing for the last four years, you're done. And we don't need you to do it again. And that's the honest truth. And we want to respect you and we want you to move forward. And we want to build a company that's a great place to be from. And so for everybody, for all the litigation Lawyers that are listening to you today, it's like, what if you created a great place to be from? Then you wouldn't be angry, you wouldn't feel like you're played, and you would figure out, okay, well, we move on. I did a conference in Canada a couple of years ago with 500 CEOs, and they all brought their HR people. And I said, raise your hand if you're in the job that you had right after you graduated from university. How many hands went up? I said, raise your hand if the most important thing you think about HR metrics is retention. 500 hands went up. I'm like, really? You know that's not true, right? You know it's a lie. So what I've decided to do and what I've made my reputation on is telling people the truth when it's real and to help them to have great opportunities at great companies and move through their careers. It's about getting rid of systems and processes that don't move the company forward or make people successful and realizing that your career is a journey and you're not going to be in the same place for the rest of your life. And a few years ago, you released an incredible book, So Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility. So for those that are listening to this, some I'm sure have read the book, some may now be ordering the book. What motivated you to write it in the first place? Well, you know, after I left Netflix, we had the culture deck, which a lot of people have read. And so inside Scoop, that deck took us 10 years to write. And every chapter is built on the chapter before. So when we had, these are the behaviors that we think are most important to rely on each other for. And then we said, we're going to have high performance employees. And then we're going to have freedom and responsibility. And then we're going to have context, not control. All those things build on each other. So then when I left Netflix, everybody would throw the deck on the table and say, we want to do that. You know, it's a big deal. It's a lot of systems. It's a lot of getting rid of things that everybody else does. It's like rethinking best practices. So I wrote the book, honestly, to be the hitchhiker's guide to the Netflix culture deck. 
And I want to go through it, at least some of the highlights, because I know early in the book, you emphasize that great teams are not created by incentives or procedures or perks, but rather by hiring people who are adults and eager to tackle challenges. Now, two questions on that. One, how do we define adults? <laughs> and then do you have any examples, maybe an experience at Netflix or anywhere else where this approach led to the formation of a remarkable team? Because I'm a recruiter, right? That's my background. I think we go about it completely backwards. So here's my methodology. If you say in six months, let's use that as a time frame, because we hardly ever use time frames when we're talking about people, right? In six months, if this team was amazing and everything was going extraordinarily well and you made a movie of it, what would be occurring then that's not occurring now? Would there be more meetings? Would there be less meetings? Would there be people with heads down just working on code? Would it be that people are cross-functionally communicating better? Would it be that our brand is more important? Whatever it is, what's that? And then you work backwards from there. Okay, so if that's going to happen in six months, then we need somebody to be able to do this. They need to be able to do it in that time frame. Then who do we have? And so what you hire for is the Delta, somebody who has experience in something we don't know how to do, somebody who has expertise in a particular technology that we don't know, somebody who's curious about something that we're taking for granted, whatever it is. So that becomes, that defining clarification becomes your job description, not that they have five and a half years of progressive experience managing, that they have the ability to solve that problem in that time frame. And so now you want to go into what would that take? And that's who you interview to succeed in that job. Because what happens really, I mean, this is my lifelong experience, is you say, I want to hire somebody who's really smart, who's a good decision maker, somebody who thinks on their feet, who's really great at communicating. I want to hire somebody just like me. And then you do. And like hires like, hires hires like, hires like. And then you wonder why nobody has a new idea. And so when you go back to say, who can solve this problem in this time frame, that's a really different experience when you're interviewing people. It's a really different experience in who you hire. I don't want to infer anything, but when you mention hiring people who are adults, is that stem from a certain level of emotional maturity or is it relating to something else? It's emotional maturity. It's somebody who's willing to take responsibility for the decisions they've made. It's somebody who's willing to learn from their bad decisions. It's about really thinking about who's going to be great on the team, but it doesn't mean who you're going to like. It's going to mean who's going to add something that you don't have already. It's like any other team, right? If you have the right people in the right place at the right time, you're going to win, right? And if you have yesterday's people for tomorrow's problem, well, you can't always get there. And it's not that they're bad people. It's just that they're the wrong people. And I know you also, you stressed about the importance of ensuring communication flows up and down within an organization. What are some of the common barriers to effective communication within organizations? What do leaders run into? How can they overcome this stuff? They listen to whiners without expecting real answers. So here's an example. I think management made a stupid decision. They shouldn't have done this. So I say, there's two questions to ask. The second one's most important. The first one is, if you were in management, what decision would you have made? 
The second one is, if you're in management, what information would you want to have to make the right decision, right? So it's this constant pushing the organization to say, okay, well, think. Problem finders are not very valuable. Problem resolvers, worth their weight in gold. So it's a matter of teaching people that we absolutely want to hear what you have to say. What do you think we should do instead, right? It's just training people to respond with, and here's my thoughtful observation about what we should do instead. For those listening, if somebody's asking themselves, well, Patty, if I share all this information with my organization, I worry if some may either misinterpret it or take it out of context or that it could somehow backfire. I mean, not all people, but a small handful, perhaps. What would you say to that? I would say that's probably pretty common in most organizations. But if you focus on the resolution, I'm going to share this information, but I'm going to tell you what I think we could do better. Then over time, you're going to have a reputation as a problem solver, not a problem finder. And the problem solvers, we notice. I've been in a lot of executive meetings about, oh man, here's this terrible problem. What are we going to do about it? Who's going to lead it? Oh, what about Joe? Right? He's unfucked (laughs) a bunch of stuff. And so we should throw him at this again, right? So you develop a reputation that leaders notice that you're able to gather other people around you and solve problems or at least attack problems and not just do the, it's not my issue. So I would say that it takes bravery, but bravery is what makes leaders. And on this note, you mentioned the value of sharing criticism openly and providing specific examples of problematic behavior and solutions. Can you share how leaders can effectively deliver criticism in a constructive manner that they can encourage more so growth than defensiveness? Yeah, I wish I had never said radical honesty because I don't think it's radical to be honest, right? And so here's a couple of notes I have around that. First of all, if you're going to comment on somebody's performance in the negative, as parents, we know how this works, right? It's called shaming, right? That bad thing you did, that was a bad thing. If you do it again, you should feel bad. And the next time you do it, you're going to feel bad. It's effective, but it's kind of slow. And if I don't say that bad thing you did, if you did this instead, it might be better, then that's helpful. The other thing is effective criticism is also really positive. If I say to you, oh my God, in this meeting, you finally spoke up and you shared your solution and it was you've been telling me about this for months. Thank you. You will do that again today. So it's about feedback in the moment. It's about feedback with a solution. That thing you did that was great, do that again. That you spoke up in a meeting and you said, this is important to me and here's what I think we should do. Or you could have done that so much better. Here's what you could have done instead. So it's about effectivity, not about cruelty. I guess to support what you said, you also said to do it in the moment or to do it soon after whatever the behavior is that occur? As soon as you can. I mean, so let's take the, you've been wanting to me about some decision that we're going to make and you've been wanting to me about it for a long time. We're in a meeting, we're about to talk about that decision And we're making the decision and you don't say anything. So I see you roll your eyes. And then later I can say, why didn't you say anything? 
would be better if in the meeting I said, why aren't you speaking up? We've talked about this before. You have disagreements with this, Michael. What would you do differently? What do you think we should do here? If I can confront you in real time and you can answer in real time, I'm teaching you how to do that. And Patty, if there's somebody listening who's saying, but that goes against everything I've learned about leadership, I thought it was praise in public and criticize in private. What would you say to that? It's really ineffective. It may be the way your culture works at the company that you're at or at the firm that you're at or whatever that you're at, but that's the reason why shit doesn't get done. Because nobody stands up and says, okay, we all know this is ridiculous. So who has an idea about how we could do this differently? I miss being part of a company. I do. And here's what I miss most. I miss going into a meeting where I'm absolutely sure I'm right, right? I've studied it. I've done the data. I'm all prepped to be righteous. And then I go into a meeting and then I'm proven wrong. And I love that. I miss that. I miss when people talk me out of my stubborn decision because their facts, their data, their suggestions are better than mine. When I left Netflix, it was the time of another big tech bubble here in the Bay Area. And I kept meeting with all these people who were the chief happiness officers. So I'm like, what do you do, right? So I'm talking to somebody about it. And I said, why do you have to make people happy? And she said, well, if we don't, they're going to walk out the door. They're going to turn right. They're going to go to the next company over who has better beer, and they're going to leave us for a better beer. And I'm like, if somebody leaves you for better beer, then bye-bye. Right? And find out when their happy hour is and go to their happy hour. But I said to her, I want everybody on the team to find three people who made a difference in this company. And it doesn't have to be by title. People go, oh, yeah, Michael's really good. And ask them to tell you about a time when they felt like they made a difference to the organization, to the customer, to the company. And every single story will be about something hard. So when we go home at night and say, great day at work, we don't say, the beer was amazing. We say, we did it. Work is about stuff we can't do anywhere else in our lives. It's being around other really smart people and accomplishing something. And then when you do those accomplishments, you think, what else can we do? <laughs> success builds on success. And then when you screw it up, if you learn from it, then you grow from it. I know you also mentioned that data should serve as the basis for good questions, but I'd love for you to elaborate on the difference between being fact-driven and data-driven and why both are essential. The reason I'm fact and data driven is that it's the easiest metrics of what's going right. So when I talk to HR teams, they're like, what HR metrics are important? I'm like the ones that are on the P&L. So if you've got a team that's committing but not delivering over and over again, quarter over quarter, something's wrong with the team. It's the wrong team. It's the wrong talent. They're committing to things they can't deliver, whatever it is. So it's always a people problem underneath it. But the metrics are in the deliverables. It's one of my favorite things about the post-pandemic world. Uh, I get asked to talk a lot about the future of work. It's here. And then the other one is whenever I talk to people before the pandemic, they would say, oh, we'd love to do what you did at Netflix, but we can't because we're 
regulated. We can't because the lawyers tell us we can't. We can't because we're international. We can't because our CFO. We can't simply work from home. 48 hours later, we did. That muscle was always there. The reason why you need the space to do what we can do is to get rid of the stuff that we don't need to do. And I want to go back to something, Hedy, I know you mentioned a little bit earlier, asking your team members to put themselves in the founder's shoes. How can, let's say, more established organizations and even their team members adopt this entrepreneurial mindset of really asking someone to put themselves in those shoes? I've heard leaders do this sort of thing, and it hasn't been as received as well by their team members. What's a way to bridge the gap? You know, I think that's kind of hokey. To be honest with you, you can't be in a large company and put yourself in the founder's shoes. There's two different pairs of shoes. One's a flip-flops and one's a hiking boot. I mean, I don't know what the metaphor is, but it's two different things. Instead of putting yourself in the founder's shoes, putting yourself in the leader's shoes. If I were a decision maker, how would I make this decision? How do I think about doing that? And you can do that at any level you're at in any part of any organization. And if you teach yourself how to think that way, then you will probably be a leader, right? Because you don't have to wait for somebody else to think about it for you. The founders aren't always right. I work with so many early stage entrepreneurs and some of the biggest things they do right is the things they do wrong. They do it wrong and they're like, oof. That was stupid. Let's try not to do that again. So it's more about learning from your mistakes than being the be-all, know-all person. And something you mentioned earlier that stuck out to me, and even in the book, that it seems very contrarian. So when you were speaking to those HR professionals, and I know you mentioned that retention is seen as the metric that everybody wants to have dialed in, and yet you say it's not a good metric of a great team. If you could elaborate on that. Well, right. Here's Michael. He's been here seven years. He hasn't done shit, but he's still here. What's the point, right? So my definition of great management is a great manager assembles an amazing team who delivers high quality results for their customers or consumers on time with quality. That's it. But it's always forward looking. It's always about what you do in the future. It's not about, did you perform well last year? Well, if you performed well last year in something that we don't need anybody to do well next year, then it doesn't really matter. And it's not you. I'm not criticizing you personally. I'm just saying, wow, it could be a whole different skill set. The Netflix example that I use in my book is, we realize we're going to grow 30% quarter over quarter, three quarters in a row. And we go to an executive staff meeting and I'm like, what if this keeps happening? You know, what happened to our company? Our CFO goes to the whiteboard and he's doing top line revenue, 30% growth, quarter of quarter. He's like, oh my God, it's so much money. At the time, we would say, someday we'll be as big as HBO. And Ted Sarandos, who's now co-CEO of Netflix, says, it's next year, you guys. We could be as impactful as HBO next year. And our head of products said, that's a third of the U.S. internet bandwidth. So I'm like, could you stay after the meeting? You know, we could talk. I'm like, does anybody know how to do that? And he says, no. How is it technically possible? And he says, well, it's in the cloud. And there are people that know how to do that more than we do. 
but you know, maybe it's Amazon, maybe it's Microsoft. So we go back to our IT team, who is absolutely, fabulously, completely and totally managing our data center for DVD by mail. And they're amazing, brilliant, incredible people. And we tell them what the problem is, and they're like, no worries. You guys go exec something. We'll build the cloud. And I said, if anybody in the world could do this, it's probably you. But not in nine months. We couldn't buy the equipment, right? And so that led to a discussion that was hard. But are we going to miss this opportunity? Because we don't have the right team? We can't. That's a really different way of thinking about teams in the future and what you want to do and how you want to scale because every problem in the future is different than the one in the past. And that proactive preparation seems like it's a recurring theme. And also, I'd love for you to speak to the value of having a highly effective team player, somebody who is really, really, really good at what they do versus somebody who's mediocre, kind of a seat filler. Yeah, I'm a big believer in the best person in every seat. So I did a dinner with a bunch of entrepreneurs, and one of them said, you don't really mean that, right? You don't really mean an A player in every seat. And I said, well, in your company, what are you talking about? You must have experience with this. And he said, yeah, but like the person in payroll doesn't have to be an A player. I'm like, really? You don't want the person that's in charge of paying who you think are the A players? to be really smart about that. And I said, and by the way, your finance department hates you. And he said, you don't know my company. You don't know anything about us. Why are you saying that? I'm like, because you just told me a perfect stranger that you think your payroll person is an idiot. You think they don't know? They know. And so who knows what they're doing behind your back to prove you're wrong. My point is, What we think as leaders sometimes are the important jobs that have to have the A players in them is true. But we want people in every job to be really passionate and good at what they do because that's what makes us effective. And along with this, it seems like if you can foster a sense of ownership or at least a level of accountability that somebody can have, I'm curious as to if there's any recommendations you'd make for leaders that are listening to this on just ways in which they can empower their team members to give them a sense of control, to give them a sense of confidence in their roles. Yeah. So I'll first speak to the word you used, empowerment, which is why I named my book Powerful, because I think the reason why we have to empower everybody now is because we took it all away. And people come to work with power, and then we slowly take it away from them. So I think the most important thing you can do is teach everybody, literally everybody in your organization, how the business works, right? How to read a P&L. This is not brain surgery. Here's what comes in. Here's what we spend money on. Here's what goes out. I remember in the first dot-com boom, I interviewed somebody and she goes, okay, okay, okay. Profit and revenue. I'm like, okay. She's like, so you can't have profit without revenue. The fundamentals of business, we should teach people very, very early on in their career so that they understand what part they play in the whole thing. The customer service rep who convinces a customer to tell somebody else to join the firm or do whatever because it's so great saves you marketing dollars, 
It's just that straight up. So teach people how it works. You spin, here's what you take. Everybody can figure that. And Patty, for someone who's listening to this, I'm sure, and I strongly recommend if they haven't, to pick up your book. But if they could take away only one thing from this conversation, I don't know if they'll get 100% of it, but what do you think that should be? Just that we haven't figured it out, that the idea of best practices typically just means what everybody else is doing, and that we don't have to wait for the future of work. It's now. And so it's perfectly okay to experiment, to try. I mean, everything I learned, I learned from engineers and product managers, which is, can we A-B test it? Should we rethink it? If I started from scratch, would I do it the way it's always been done? People ask me all the time now, who do you think is doing the best job at remote work? I'm like, nobody. We're all just making it up. (laughs) But they want to figure it out for a law firm. They want to figure it out for a public utility. Every organization is different, and it's okay, it's perfectly okay to be who you are in the space that you're in. How do you believe it's different to be a leader today than maybe five or ten years ago? What do you see as the biggest differences? I think it's about context, right? I mean, I think it used to be edicts that come from the top, the whole waterfall fantasy, like, oh, we'll say it from the top and it'll flow down and everybody will understand it. It just doesn't happen anymore. Partly because it's not how we operate anymore. We're on social media. We talk to each other all the time. We all opine about what's going on. So people are much, much more informed than they used to be where they waited for leaders to tell them what to do. So I think that the best leaders are the ones that really focus on context. Here's what we're doing. Here's what it's about. One of my favorite parts about working with Reed Hastings was he would stand up and say, I was wrong. Here's the decision I made. At the time I made it, here's the information I had to make that decision. I was wrong. And here's what I know now that I didn't know then. That bottling of constantly refreshing what we know, what we're learning, what we know, what we're learning, I think is really powerful in organizations going forward. Agreed. And as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, Patty, what does being a game changer mean to you? Stop doing stupid stuff. It's that easy, honestly. I want to give a huge thank you to Patty McCord for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Patty McCord, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.